Episode 1820 of Effectively Wild Baseball Podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined as always by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. And we are both joined today by Fangraphs' own Dan Simborski. Hello, Dan. Welcome back. Hi. How's it going today? Well, the deal is done. That is the deal between MLB and Apple to stream (laughs) two Friday night games per week. The good news is that those games won't be blacked out. The bad news is that you'll need to subscribe to Apple TV Plus if you want to watch them. Although there are some good shows on there I could recommend if you do, but that will be in place starting with the 2022 season. Of course, that's contingent on there being a 2022 season, which depends on a different deal that still (sighs) isn't done as we record this on Tuesday afternoon. Help me out here. Am I experiencing deja vu or did we already go through a Tuesday deadline to save the season <laughs> last week? Because that seems sort of familiar. I feel like we've also, while it wasn't a strict deadline, gone through a period of not knowing exactly where the negotiations stood while we were recording with Dan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had bad news go while um, we were. I yeah. remember being cautiously optimistic, and then I think it was Ben who said, check Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And what did we discover when we did? <laughs> Another Taco Tuesday has been ruined. <laughs> yeah. As a writer, I appreciate flexible deadlines, not so much as an editor, I guess. And now that I'm wearing both of those hats again, I have to kind of divide my mind. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you're running a little late on a piece, you appreciate when a deadline can be moved. If you are waiting to see whether there will be an MLB season and how long it will be and what it will look like not quite as fun so this is the latest in a series of totally real this is the absolute last deadline deadline so we'll see if this one produces any movement or whether it actually turns out to be a deadline at all but I would gladly accept this episode being a bit out of date if it means the season will start in a few weeks and if that's the case we'll probably record another episode soon I guess that goes without saying because we always (laughs) record another episode soon (laughs) anyway i don't think you need to pause your podcast player or archive this episode if there has been a deal since we recorded this because i think a lot of what we're going to talk about today should apply regardless of where that situation stands on the docket we've got expanded playoff formats the competitive balance tax maybe some potential rules changes and free agent destinations all of which just so happen to be subjects that dan has recently written about for fangraphs.com isn't that convenient (laughs) it is maybe we could record two episodes a happy one and a sad one kind of like they how they made animated different endings of who shot mr burns on the simpsons (laughs) and then we can have kind of that lost episode that leaks right archives 
yeah, choose your own adventure, effectively wild style. Just listen to the happy episode, even if the actual reality is not that happy. But that reminds me, I'm hoping, Dan, that you can cheer me up a bit, irrepressible optimist that you are, because I have been feeling a bit bummed, not just about the fact that there's no deal and that the season is potentially slipping away, but also I think about the fact that it seems like even if the season is saved, even if it comes back quickly, the ship has sort of sailed on baseball being better when the deal is done in any meaningful way. I mean, I like baseball the way it was as well, so that wouldn't be the worst thing. But it seemed like there was some potential for significant shifts, not just in the revenue distribution in baseball or, or things that affect the players' bottom line, let's say, but also things that affect the fans as well, whether it's competitive integrity or competitive balance or whatever you want to call it, or on-field rules changes. And the longer time has gone on, the more some of the ambitious proposals have been dispensed with or walked back to the point that it seems like where we are now is basically just agreeing on more or less preserving the status quo with a decimal point changed here or there or an extra zero added or removed or not even an extra zero, just you know one digit slightly changing. Not that these things aren't important to the people involved in the negotiations, but it doesn't seem like any longstanding issues with baseball are necessarily going to be addressed and the ones that maybe have the best chance to be changed are ones that I have mixed feelings about at best, <laughs> namely expanded playoffs, banning the shift, etc. And it seems like you've kind of come around on both of those issues, at least to an extent, after previously being where I am, which is pretty doom and gloom. So maybe we can start with expanded playoffs because you've written about that topic multiple times. And again, we still don't know <laughs> for sure if the playoffs will be expanded or how much they will be expanded to 12 teams or 14 teams or what the format will be. But you wrote about this first, I think, back in February, where the headline was, let's try to make expanded playoffs not stink. And then more recently, you projected what the league would actually look like in a 12-team playoff structure. So do you want to describe the evolution in your thinking if there has been a change? Well, I, I hate the idea of expanded playoffs because on a fundamental level, it's what Baseball is different than other sports in that it is the marathon, not the sprint. I mean, who cares about the NBA regular season? And I know people say that the NBA has eight teams in each conference. It's It would be fine. But the problem is in the NBA, the eight seed is mostly dead in the water. There are some exceptions. But I, I look back at that uh, Lopez Matthews Baumer study mm. that to have the same record of of basketball's better team advancing in the playoffs baseball would have to play best of 75 playoff series i don't think the mlbpa would be down with that uh necessarily <laughs> so that's probably an unrealistic thing so i i'm a traditionalist when it comes to the structure but i did like 10 teams better than eight teams simply because that wild card play in and that little mini buy it provided a way to differenti differentiate a division winner from the second place team. And during the early wild card era, we had a problem, I think, that winning the division, if you were the wild card, wasn't really that big a deal because home field advantage just isn't that huge a bonus in baseball. And right. there's, it's hard to make that. That's why you see players talking about things like ghost wins or, or how, however you want to call them. I think that you can design a 12-team or a 14-team playoff to still not 
alter the the incentives in a perverse fashion, but it becomes tricky because, again, unless you're willing to kind of break those rules about how many wins teams have to win, you don't have that good reward. Earlier, when I was talking about a 14-team playoff system, I argued that the, the division winner that didn't get the bye uh, should have to to play against the the lowest wild card uh, team in what I called the knockout round, where that seven seed in the league would have to sweep a three game series, you know, make them really be the underdog victor in order to advance as a real incentive to be a better team because you don't want an 83 win team and a 95 win team to have roughly the same probability uh, because there's a lot of negative consequences for fans in that players can watch out for themselves, but we have to watch out for the fans. And I think it would just cheapen baseball's experience considerably. And for the folks who didn't read that initial article, what you were endeavoring to do, you know, in, in the Zimborski lab is come up with a scenario where you are at least as incentivized to add wins through free agency as you would be in our existing playoff structure. And then you've revised it to look at sort of the 12-team proposal that it seems as if there is some amount of consensus around uh, between the Players Association and the league, although it sounds like this might be a, an issue of bargaining that moves back onto the table if the players feel that they might that they need to concede a 14-team field in order to get what they want on the CBT. So when you looked at the 12-team the field, you were not assuming ghost wins or anything like that. No, no fun. You have to win a bunch in a row kind of things that you were doing in your, in your little lab. So how big a difference do you think the ghost win makes in terms of how well incentivized teams will be to improve their rosters or are buys sort of sufficient, do you think? I think it's a significant difference. Uh, but when I projected out a 12 team playoff structure using, you know, 2022 teams, not just some random team. So a, a whole different configuration could move things one way or the other. It wasn't as bad as I expected. Uh, in the end, when I actually ran the numbers, uh, you you still had a, a, a significant incentive to be a better division winner. And unlike the 14 team configuration, you didn't have to be the best division winner. So there was still a possibility like if the Dodgers are winning like 105 games, it doesn't just make winning the division uh, uh, for everyone else a crapshoot after that. It seemed that in a lot of circumstances, it was actually helping the the top team or two in the league because the average opponent they were facing uh, was worse than in the current system because a lot of times that number three seed, that third division winner was getting knocked off, which was frequently the AL Central or NL Central winner. I would still prefer 10, but I don't think 12 is as awful as it could be, let's just say. Could be 14, could be 16. <laughs> oh, 16. 16 is the worst because 16, <laughs> then nobody gets a buy. And I know people are, uh, this is something I'm going to look at in the future, but when I've looked at Korea, which does have this kind of gauntlet structure where teams right. sit for quite a good length of time. There wasn't the same prop. There wasn't any real problem of of higher seeds underperforming because of the layoffs. So I think that's not a worry, even though people have brought it up. I I think you do want to have a buy because a buy is so much more powerful an incentive than home field advantage in a three game coin flip. Ugh. <laughs> right. By the way, I misspoke in my intro when I said that you'd need to subscribe to Apple TV Plus at least initially. 
the press release says well, that it will be you. available yes for a limited time without the need for a subscription although again for all mankind and mythic quest a lot of good shows on there but you'd need a, an app of some sort or to access it differently than you would otherwise again would be happy to go the extra mile if it means that there are major league games to watch on friday night but <laughs> back to the playoff structure so are there any other proposals or formats that you've heard or that you've considered that make sense to you and do you think that the ghost win idea which i i feel like i should be calling the zombie win just because that's what i've been calling the zombie runner that people call the ghost runner we but have I to guess, differentiate <laughs> yes it's it's different this is i think ghost applies more accurately to the concept of the ghost win than to the ghost runner which is different from the traditional term ghost runner but what do you think that would do to the spectator experience? I mean, if you come into a series and you're already down without having actually lost a game to that team, although you have, in a sense, earned that deficit by being worse over the course of the regular season, do you think that would be just as fun to dig yourself out of that hole? Or would it be demoralizing or would it seem unearned in some way, that advantage? It's hard to say. I think you can market that in a way because you could MLB doesn't want to do that but I also get the impression they're not really thinking of trying to put it in the best light possible because you can sell it as the knockout series sudden death Mm -hmm. for that last place team like just like a handicap that they can overcome I mean every sports movie the good guys start down they don't usually start even with the with the with the antagonists they have to fight their way back so I think there are ways you can spin this I'm not a marketing person but I, I think if they use their imaginations, they could figure that out. Uh, and I think maybe you don't necessarily call it a ghost win. You just say that the team has to sweep the other team or win one more game. I don't think you actually pretend that there was a game that was won that wasn't. That'd be kind of weird. But I, I, I think you could call it, you know, knockout round, sudden death round. There's all sorts of things you could do. And really, there's only so many logical ways you can create an advantage for a team with a better record i mean it's a lot less extreme than say you know starting them off every game with a run or something which would be very (laughs) weird i i don't want a zombie run any more than i want a zombie runner but i think it's one of those situations where if mlb saw money in it that would benefit them all of a sudden that they would have an imagination because they seem to be able to do that when it benefits them I guess that we should have known this was coming when we put the postseason in October, which is famously spooky season. We're going (laughs) to escape ghosts and ghouls that way. I know that you were encouraged by the sort of relative insulation that this structure seemed to give to the really good teams, but I want to talk about the, the potential for really bad teams here. I know that you ran odds on just how bad the third wild card in this scenario would be. So what are the odds that we're going to see just a truly dreadful team make it into this structure? <laughs> it happened occasionally. I got to lose, on average, I got a losing team in the playoffs about 5% of the time in both leagues so it's 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 a little more often than that when you count entire years but i got in in a million years i got ranges of that third team from 73 wins to 99 wins both of course were very crazy simulations <laughs> right what would you think of the prospect of just expanding the playoffs that we already have which is something that we have suggested 
from our listeners every now and then a, a listener named Daniel emailed us this week to say when it comes to expanded playoffs what about just making the division series at best of seven it seems like everyone gets what they want here since it makes it less of a coin flip but still gives the owners more revenue if that's not enough of a cash grab then making the wild card game into a best of three would add more revenue and at that point you've added six to twelve more playoff games without having to expand the field at all do you think that would satisfy anyone or would you prefer that it would satisfy me because all of a sudden you're making it even better to have a good team because the players are aware of and the owners are aware of that the more you decouple team quality from World Series championships, the less value it is to invest in a player to win a World Series championship. Yeah, you still have pride, but pride and profit is better than just pride. <laughs> I don't think that I think that if the owners would be satisfied to just expand the length of the series, that this wouldn't be an issue anymore. I think they just want more teams in there because the the marginal value of a whole new fan base following is probably more than just keeping the existing fan base for an additional game or two every year. Mm -hmm. I, I can't read their minds, but that's what my guess is that where they're at. I guess that one of the things that I've been thinking about in the last couple of days after I've read your piece was not only that this sort of takes the knees out from under team entropy, which will be devastating to Jay Jaffe and the, the fellow <laughs> adherents to that team, but how did this, and I'm putting this question to both of you, kind of complicate the potential for tiebreakers? Because if we have an expanded field and we have to start playing playoff games right away in order to not have the playoffs leak too deep into November. Are we just going to have to do like paper tiebreakers for stuff? Oh, I hope not. I, I would really hate if there was ever a tiebreak for either a buy versus no buy or making the playoffs versus not making the playoffs. I think that would be just a disaster because that's one of the most exciting parts. It's like an extra playoff round and owners should like that whenever there's a a one-day playoff, it's like having an additional team in the playoffs. Uh, if we had one last year, we would have had 11-team playoffs in a kind of a de facto manner. I don't think they really need to be as scared of pushing into November as people think. I looked at this a few years ago, and in the majority of major league markets, the average temperature on November 1st was higher than on April 5th. So it's. I think they could push it a few more days. Especially as the weather warms up forever until we're yeah. all boiling. But I wonder also, this is something that we talked about last time, the idea of potentially shortening the regular season, especially if the playoffs expand, just because the stakes will at that point be a lot lower. They're already pretty low in a lot of late regular season games. And you're a projections whiz. So how much would lopping off some not inordinate number of games reduce the predictability of the season or, I guess, make underdogs more likely? I mean, you've been through this with 2020, which was a 60-game season, and of course, that made it far more feasible for not very good teams, <clears throat> the Marlins, to make the playoffs. But if we were to lop off, well... How many could you lop off before you had a meaningful reduction in, say, how much true talent dictates your actual record and your playoff position? I, I know it's kind of just a sliding scale and each game you cost yourself some amount of predictiveness or reflection of true talent. But at what point do you think you would really be sacrificing something meaningful? 
I mean, on a fundamental level, depending on where you draw the line, you can say that 162 games is already lopping off of right. what the true talent says, because that's sometimes the frustrating thing about projections is that we never really know if the answer is the right answer. We never know that if the 300 hitter was actually a 300 hitter or a 280 hitter who was lucky, a 320 hitter who was not, that kind of becomes a problem uh, in, no matter what the length of a season is. Uh, I think that, you know, 154 games, 144 games. I don't think those are a problem, but I think once you start getting past like 20 or 30 games, then it starts to become increasingly silly in a way in which we leave baseball with kind of a situation where it becomes hard to identify who the actual best team is because now when the best team by the regular season loses in the playoffs in the first round and in some fluky game, we can at least still say that oh, we, we think they were probably the best team. But if you have, say, an 80-game season and, you know, an 18-team playoff, I don't think you actually have any finality to the season. They're just games that happened. And I think without some kind of at least perceived belief that the world champion is the best or just some way to identify the best, then you don't really have much to kind of use as kind of a guiding point for a season uh, to define it in the future. Right. Well, hopefully that turns out not to be relevant for 2022, but I would not be surprised if it does in a future season. And the more you expand the playoffs, the harder it gets really to argue against that, much as I just like baseball being on for a lot of the year. But say we do end up with a 12-team playoff format this year, or I don't know whether you projected a 14-team format or not, but your most recent post, you looked at how that changes the playoff probabilities in such a scenario. Even the Pirates would have a 1% chance to make the playoffs if you round up. (laughs) They don't quite get there otherwise. But who are the big beneficiaries of that? With the caveat, of course, that many prominent free agents still remain unsigned. So your projections for team strength right now are pretty provisional. Yeah, this is this is the farthest behind I've been in projections in a year. <laughs> it's not your fault. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's March, and I still don't know what teams I'm projecting. Uh, generally speaking, the 12-team playoffs, the the top division winners, obviously, they, they lose less uh, in this system compared to going, like, to 14. They lose less than those AL Central and NL Central victors. Uh, the White Sox and the Cardinals and the Brewers were kind of the big losers there simply because they're the most likely division winners to be thrown into a three-game series for their lives. Uh, The teams that benefit are the teams that are good, like in that 85 to 92 win territory in a really deep division. All the AL East teams, uh, off the top of my head, I believe that they were like the top of competitive teams in the World Championships added simply because their risk is a lot lower because as we saw last year you had you know the blue jays were a really good team looking out at the at the rest of the division so i don't know necessarily if people are going to like the idea of an al east team getting the most benefit uh as a good thing but i mean this changes year to year based on the relative strength of the teams and that was the biggest difference between the existing playoff field and the 12 team field right Pretty much. When you got into 14 teams, there was less of an advantage simply because teams like the Dodgers, who have a relatively high chance of being the best team in the league, they don't get hurt, but kind of everybody else does. And that I can see being really just deleterious to to competition because all of a sudden, once you have a 105 or however many win team in the league, then wins like win number 98 doesn't mean that much. And that's not good. 
Even under the expanded playoff format, you have the Angels with a 35% chance to make the playoffs. So even that doesn't necessarily get Trout and Otani to October, which would be one silver lining, at least. <laughs> but need to expand it more for that to happen, evidently, or for us to feel secure in that happening. And you noted in that post that your projections have changed slightly since the last time we talked to you a month or two ago, and that's not because rosters have changed. Obviously, it is because, as you note, you consider the distribution of performances on rosters and calculate playoff team strength slightly differently than regular season strength. What does that mean? In this case, this was something I was working on over the winter. I've had a lot of space to work on these things (laughs) uh, for some reason. Generally speaking, normally when Zips projects the playoffs before the actual playoffs, it uses kind of the regular season measure of strength. When you talk about the playoffs, it's a playoff model now similar to the postseason projections that you see with the exact pictures, the lineups, because certain teams, especially if they have a disproportionate uh, amount of their strength kind of in their rotation, the top few pictures uh, in their starting lineup, That tends to be better because depth just isn't as big a deal in the postseason as the regular season. Uh, So teams that do have a very top-heavy rotation and lineup, like the Dodgers, did kind of eke out a few more percentage points. It wasn't a major difference, but someone who read the previous piece would say, hey, why... Why did the Diamondbacks go from 0.1 to (laughs) 0.0? Is something sneaky going on? Like... And there were actually a few minor league signings that kind of got into the back of the depth charts, too, I I should mention. Some of our listeners are thinking, surely no one noticed that, and those people have never looked at our comment sections. (laughs) The other big thing that you have looked at this week, Dan, is sort of competitive balance as a concept. We want a playoff structure that finally incentivizes the Angels to get Mike Trout and Shohei Otani into October, but playoff structure is not enough on its own. The economics obviously play a role here, so for the folks who have not had a chance to read your piece today. What were you endeavoring to do with your look at the competitive balance tax? Well, generally what I was I was talking about is the owners have talked a lot about the competitive balance tax as a competitive balance tax and necessary for competition. Uh, but on a fundamental level, it's not really designed as you would design something designed for competitive balance. Uh, I talked a bit about a luxury tax. Luxury tax literally have have approached luxury goods, which kind of sometimes fall out of the normal realm of supply and demand called Verblen goods, uh, that sometimes their actual demand increases because they're expensive. You can say that for certain marquee players in baseball. So as I said, it's not really about competitive balance, not really luxury tax. It's In a lot of ways, it functions like a soft salary cap, and it's kind of tied to the revenue sharing system, which the which the owners very, very clearly made sure that they were not going to talk about at all. Uh, The players kind of backed off from that. But baseball has long sold the revenue sharing system as a source of competitive balance to help smaller markets compete. But it's not really distributed on the basis of being a small market. It's the way that revenue is pooled. It's distributed largely in addition to market on actual revenue. So it becomes a tax on increasing revenue and a subsidy on having low revenues in a small market. And what that does is it kind of perverts the whole incentive structure considerably. Uh, I talk about the Rays a lot, but the Rays are in a position where their revenue is not 
coupled with winning all that much. The shared revenue they get certainly isn't. Uh, they've they've been in, nearly unable to coax more fans into the park when they're winning. So on a fundamental level, the Rays are incentivized to act as they do. They do want to win. The front office certainly wants to win. I'm sure they'd be happy to spend any money that that Stuart Sternberg would give them. But it's just really it's it's not in their financial it's there's nothing pushing them to make it a good idea for them. And I think if you want to correct this, you need to make investing in the team, not just a good idea, not just a morally superior idea, but a financially superior one. And you do that by, or at least the way I see it is by using baseball's revenue sharing pool. I use the sum of about $400 million uh, just for this structural example to distribute it based on winning uh, so that the Rays get more money at 95 wins than they would at 65 wins. No, you're not going to suddenly make them act in a completely different way, but you're providing a, a, a framework in which the marginal revenue they get for an additional win is out there. It is fixed and teams will have just a real incentive beyond pride to improve and not just put it in their pockets. Now, large owners don't necessarily want that because uh, the last thing that, you know, Hal Steinbrenner wants is to pay the raise to bid against him. So this system works out well for both large markets and small markets, but it fundamentally creates the structure we're in now where teams at the bottom end of the spectrum who can invest and should invest just aren't really being pushed to invest because there's just no significant incentive to do that. There's kind of a cognitive dissonance that comes from looking at these proposals, and it seems like every time MLB says that it will budge slightly on where the CBT is set, it comes with strings, right? It's like, well, we'll raise it a little bit, not as much as you want us to raise it, but a little bit if you give us insert pretty significant concession here. And obviously it's their prerogative to bargain for these things and to try to get the most and give the least that they can. But it seems strange that the expectation is that the CBT will just stay frozen in time forever, seemingly, and that to have any kind of concession there to raise it to keep pace, not just with MLB revenues, but with inflation that seems to be something that MLB has taken the position throughout these negotiations that will require some significant concession on the players' part, or even when the players make concessions, seemingly it will require some additional concession. So it's hard to see other than pure <laughs> just intransigence how they have come to the conclusion that this should just stay the same forever if you're going to have it then it seems like you know if it's not necessarily pegged to inflation or to rising revenue or something like that that it would kind of be a starting point that it's going to go up at least a little bit over time as things generally do but that just does not seem to have been an assumption that the two sides came to the table with or at least were willing to admit that they did yeah i'm not a labor lawyer and i'm also not a player so i obviously cannot act in their interest they act in their own interest and they have very good representation but i 
my personal feeling is that on the player side, their focus should be on doing what the owners did. Uh, the owners didn't get the last friendly CBA all of a sudden. They incrementally, you know, boiled the frog. They put the frog in the cold pot and turned up the heat. They they got the CBT in the door in 2002 and 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 kind of used it to constrict the, the players over time. They got the steroid penalties into the system and then it was much easier to just increase them increase them and put pressure on the players to do that i think the players should prioritize not necessarily maximizing the the bottom line dollars they get but maximizing the new structures that they have physically in place i don't think like this new bonus pool for for pre-arbitration players I don't think the amount, the exact amount is as important as getting it established and part of the game the way the CBT is. Because mm. once it's there, it's hard to disengage. I also think that the, the player should be willing even to start at a lower CBT just to get a fig, a percentage that it grows up every year. Mm -hmm. Even the players are only proposing it go up like two and a half percent a year. The owners proposed it was like 0.9% per year uh, for the course of the deal. I, I think that if the players came down a little low and said, okay, we'll start at 225, but it's going to go up by 1.7% a year, you were all of a sudden putting it in the system making it kind of, you know, the uh, a fait accompli that it's the structure and that there is a number to go up. And once it's there, you can argue about what a number is. It would be much harder for the owners to completely disengage from that. So I think they need to think long term, get the structures in place as best they can in this deal. And then over over time, I mean, that's not really satisfying for players now who aren't going to be around in 20 years. But that's how you beat the owners. You have to think 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years down the road. Yeah, it seems like a lot of these measures are intended not so much to incentivize teams to behave the right way as to maybe give them slaps on the wrist if they don't. I mean, there's something, you know, in the draft lottery idea, which seems to be something that is intended to increase competitive integrity or to disincentivize tanking, but doesn't seem like it actually will to the extent that that is currently a problem just because most Tanking, if you want to call it tanking, doesn't really happen to tank for draft picks the way that it might yeah. in other sports or even might have under earlier CBAs. It's more about just kind of cashing the checks that you're already receiving because you can make money without necessarily putting the best product on the field. So there's that kind of arrangement where it's like, well, if you're really serious about this, wouldn't you put some other system of solving it in place or things like, you know, service time manipulation, which I understand is a difficult thing to regulate and to erase every loophole. But a lot of it seems to be sort of after the fact, you know, like if you win awards or, or something like that, then maybe there is some condition put in place for that as opposed to you just can't do this we're going to make it impossible for you to do this that kind of thing so a lot of it seems like acknowledging conceding that these things are going to happen and then maybe building in some slight measures to make them less advantageous more so than actually legislating them out of the game which might be easier said than done 
Yeah, I have my own scheme on on, on uh, service time manip- manipulation that the owners would never agree to. <laughs> What's your proposal? <laughs> my suggestion is that you treat the extra service time that they steal as kind of a loan from the player to the team that has to be repaid when they hit free agency. Mm. So <laughs> if Chris Bryant, you know, hits free agency with six years and 171 uh, days of service time, the Cubs owe him 170, 170 seconds of of the average annual value of his next deal or something to that effect or a percentage of the next deal. But I don't think there's any chance unless you I think you'd have to crush the owners together to, to agree to that. But I think it would be fairer in a way simply because while you can't stop salary manipulation, you can set the cost of it, a cost that naturally uh, adjusts to the value of the player and and the theft of their service time, but it would be unlikely to see that happening since they, you can't even get the owners to agree on, you know, a slightly higher cap that 26 teams won't even come near. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the idea that has been raised recently in political circles of just the fact that maybe people crack the code and figure out that, well, if you just don't have shame or you don't admit that you were wrong or you refuse to budge on something, then ultimately maybe it works out and the norms can't actually contain you. It's sort of like if you come to the bargaining table and you refuse to budge on certain things or even refuse to entertain the idea of changing certain Certain things, then if the other side is sort of more committed to the process of negotiation and give and take, well, it might work out for you. It'd be hard to say that the owner's strategy thus far in the CBA talks is not working for them. I mean, it's not working in the sense that, at least as we speak, there's no agreement and thus no baseball season, which doesn't really benefit anyone in the long term, but in the sense that they have probably given up less and maybe came to the table agreeing to give up less it, that has you know kind of uh, maybe supported the wisdom of that strategy I, I hate to say it but you'd be hard-pressed to say that they are losing this negotiation to the extent that anyone is actually ahead I mean the owners always will have a built-in advantage in that they have more time right. than players right. do mm-hmm. a, an owner can wait 10 years to recoup their investment a lot of these guys don't even see themselves as baseball owners there. I think many of them see themselves as real estate moguls that have kind of their little baseball lifestyle brand to to maximize their real estate portfolios. I also kind of feel like you're trying to get me to back off my position that a hot dog is not a sandwich, <laughs> which I never will and you can never make me. Yeah, I just wonder if, you know, I, I appreciate that incentives are always going to be like the preferred approach to this stuff because it allows teams that don't want to spend the way other teams do, don't want to sign free agents the way other teams do, want to continue to monkey with service time, the the wiggle room to do that. But I just wonder if we've reached sort of the, the natural edge of the usefulness of incentives and need there to be actual sort of sticks as well as carrots, because it's hard to enforce service time, right? It's hard to to say for sure when a guy's service time is being monkeyed with, although there are plenty of teams that are happy to just tell you that's what they're doing. But I wonder if rather than having this be a matter of additional bonus pools or draft picks or whatever, if we need to better fortify a grievance process that allows players the opportunity to really try to take this stuff to some sort of arbiter and say, I, I've clearly been had here in a way that is going to delay my future earnings meaningfully. I don't know. 
Yeah, the, the problem is that a player like Chris Bryant, I mean, he has to prove a case for what proof will there will there be. I'm not a lawyer, so you'd need a lawyer to talk about the practicality, but I'd love if major league teams were required to preserve any communications that dealt with a player's promotion, that it had yeah. to be preserved on the record. I don't know if they could make that happen either, because again, <laughs> we look at what they what they haven't been able to leverage. But I, I, I think that would be a fairer system. Yeah. Because a grievance process doesn't work unless there's an actual realistic set of conditions in which the aggrieved can win when they're wronged. It's not really. It's the same with the uh, requirement. You, you read the, the CBA and teams are supposed to use that revenue sharing money to improve their team, not to, you know, pay off their personal loans or anything. Right. And one of the mechanisms for enforcement is the commissioner is supposed to look out for that. But the commissioner is an employee of the owners. And so that just leaves the the, the players in, in the situation where they have to prove that Robert Nutting did not use the money in that way. And that's... Uh, uh, they, they, that's really hard to win. Yeah. You basically have to have like a hidden camera that says, ha ha, Chris Bryant's not really better than Mike Alt. <laughs> right. It seems like in the meantime, we just need a new name for at least the CBT because we've gone along with this terminology, this competitive balance tax, which every time we say it or write it really reinforces the idea that it actually does promote competitive balance or is necessary for competitive balance. It's like the Save America. America's Pastime Act, quote unquote, <laughs> from a few years ago, which posited that the way to save America's pastime was to pay minor leaguers less than minimum wage. So I don't know what the solution is for the CBT, whether we just call it the payroll tax or what, but it seems like we need to maybe get away from its official name. I've been calling it a soft cap a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's what it is. Yeah. So let's move on to another topic, which is on-field rules changes. And again, we don't know where all this is going to end up, but we do know from some reporting that this was a subject of conversation recently and that the league has been pushing for the right to unilaterally institute changes to the game after 45 days rather than after one year, one year after notifying the PA, which is where things stand now. And also, according to Ken Rosenthal, I believe the Players Association, at least in one incarnation of the deal, which was, of course, not formalized, they agreed to grant the league the ability to change three things as early as 2023 while denying the request to, say, institute robozones. But the pitch clock, larger bases, and shift restrictions were the three that were named that we could see as soon as next year. Totally on board with the pitch clock, fine with bigger bases, but the shift is one that I think makes a lot of us instinctively recoil. And part of it is just a philosophical opposition to legislating where you can and can't stand. Part of it, I think, is also just some doubt that it would actually have the intended effect. So you have kind of come around, right? At least according to a, a recent Twitter thread of yours where you said that you have kind of resigned yourself to it or come to terms with some aspects of it. So what's your thinking about the possibility of a shift ban? Well, my natural my natural inclination towards baseball conservative was like, how 
dare they tell them where they can stand. Mm -hmm. But I've come around to the idea, partially from, I think, my experience covering esports uh, for ESPN, mm -hmm. uh, as weird as this analogy is. I do think that I probably need to get over that philosophical boundary, the, the obstacle, because on a fundamental level, if it makes the sport more dynamic, it makes the sport more exciting, and it makes the sport from an analytic standpoint less solved, why should a philosophical thing have stand in the way of that? I, I think games do have to change. When they talk about balancing uh, esports titles, or really any game, but mostly the ones that focus on competition, there's something that they call the meta, which is the kind of the, the rules that exist at that time and balance out the strategic and tactical considerations. Mm -hmm. Like in a game like Overwatch, the meta is which heroes are, are more powerful at high level play at any certain time. And what game companies do to keep their game interesting and to keep it from becoming in a rut is when these metas are, are solved, they do try to balance things out somewhat. If baseball could solve the issue and you actually had a situation in which teams of varying different types of offenses could compete, will we really miss the, the, the shift that much? Because all great offenses look the same. They hit a lot of home runs. They draw walks. But, you know, every bad offense is what looks different. It's the old Anna Karenina, uh, Leo Tolstoy thing when, you know, all all happy families are alike. I think that baseball could get a benefit of having more balls in play. Uh, I don't, and I think there are subtle ways to do that. I think maybe, you know, the increasing the bag might actually help that. One of my favorite ideas, which I'd love for them to test in the minors, I mean, if you have the Atlantic League for that purpose, they should be testing all sorts of crazy things because if it makes the sport better, don't, don't avoid it. My, I would love them to see them experiment with 88 foot base paths, <laughs> but I, I think a lot of people would recall for that because they picked 90 feet. In, in, in the 19th century, because that just seemed like a good balance at the time. But this is a different, this, it's 2022. I don't think that the exact balance of things 140 years ago is what's persist today. You incentivize, we, we've talked a lot about incentives in this episode. You incentivize a, a, a style of baseball in which putting the ball in play isn't just aesthetically pleasing, but beneficial. And I think you will have more variety of offense. And I don't want my, my fogeyism to stand in the way of that. Right. So that's the point of some contention, I think, because you will have some people such as Joshian, right, who will say, well, if you make the league safe for the Joey Gallows of the world, again, you are just reinforcing the idea that you can be like Joey Gallo, that you can just pull a lot of balls, that you can try to hit everything in the air and just go for power. And then you'll end up with even more of that archetype kind of paradoxically. As you say, though, there is the counter argument that, well, maybe if balls in play are more beneficial, then you do give players more incentive to put the ball in play. I think one of my reservations comes back to the fact that it's just so hard to put the ball in play at this point, given the way that pitchers pitch, that I kind of doubt that it will have that huge an effect. Like, as you say, you know, you want more balls in play. Will this actually lead to more balls in play? I don't know, because is it even under players' control now that they can put the ball in play in a productive way? Can they actually place the ball? Can they decide to make contact? Or is 
is it just almost impossible to do because pitchers are tunneling and they're throwing so hard and they're refining their movement and they've just become these perfect creatures out there that are optimized in the lab before they even go out to the major league mound so That's the thing that gives me some pause, aside from the philosophical argument, because I'm fine with changing things in principle, and I think more things should be changed. If there's one area where I'm probably more aligned with the owners than with the players, it's in the idea that, no, we actually do need to keep changing baseball. You know, players, understandably, I think kind of dragged their feet a bit when it comes to certain changes, whether it was steroid testing decades ago or whether it's on-field changes now. And maybe the role of a league is to step in and say, hey, even if you like it the way it was, this is not great for our fans or for building the game. And so we need to do something different here. And that's what the NFL has largely done, seemingly to great success and aided by the fact that the NFLPA was basically broken and thus cannot actually stand in the way of any of these moves, but that has kind of helped the game evolve and and maybe normalize the idea that it is constantly evolving, whereas in baseball, obviously there have been rules changes dating back to the beginning, but it's been a while since some of the more significant ones. I'm more on board with the idea of removing certain restrictions than imposing new ones. I mean, if you go back to the beginning and there are rules against, you know, where you can throw the ball or how you can throw it. You know, you can't throw sidearm. You can't throw overhand. You have to tell the batter whether you're throwing a high pitch or a low pitch, you know, (laughs) changing those rules and giving players greater choice and freedom is an easier sell for me than saying you can't do this or you can do that. And I'm okay with certain aspects of that. You know, if we're talking about, say, putting restrictions on rosters and how many pitchers you can have on a certain roster, that's maybe heavy-handed, but I think it might be necessary and beneficial at this point. And so I guess part of my attachment to the shift partly is that I think its effectiveness is somewhat exaggerated, as Russell Carlton, let's say, has documented over and over that often the shift can be inefficient as used and teams shift on righties, although they've started to curtail that a bit, and that can almost balance out the benefit that they get from shifting on lefties or maybe it makes pitchers less effective in some sort of hidden way and just the idea that for a while there the shift was fun right maybe we've passed that point but there was a time when it was creative and innovative and it was you know quote-unquote smart and progressive and it just made sense to position defenders where the ball was going to be hit and it led to a lot of variety for a while because you'd have some teams shifting and some teams not or some teams shifting in a certain way that no one else shifted and you still do see some of that with outfield shifting by the way which may have a a big impact too and you'd have to craft the rule in such a way that it forbids that too potentially which I, I guess could be done depending on how you frame it but we've maybe gotten to the point where it's so standardized now that the shift as we would have called it is now kind of the default defensive alignment maybe it's no longer fun or an area of differentiation it's just the new standard except maybe in theory it's more effective and suppresses hits on balls and play I just wonder about the prospects who are coming up right now who are thought to be sort of big league viable in a non-DH capacity because you'd be able to hide them in the shift. Like what's going to happen to those guys, right? right? Like what happens to the shift-aided second baseman whose bat you really want in the lineup but who is just an absolute butcher in the field? 
I mean, I guess some of that pressure is perhaps alleviated when we get the universal DH, because at least on the NL side, they'll have somewhere to put that guy, but they'll only have one somewhere to put that guy. So what if the overall effect of losing the shift is actually a little bit uh, worse for offense because now big yeah, bats that, don't have a place in the lineup that they might have otherwise. That's a good point. Yeah, in a way, I wouldn't mind that because I don't mind the idea that you do have different body types and and different skill sets that go with certain positions. And if you can just stick anyone anywhere, then maybe there's a little less differentiation. But you're right that one side effect of that is that it might be harder to find a spot for a masher, and then you might end up hurting offense anyway. It's a complicated subject, and that, I think, if anything, it it feels like a little too soon for me. Like, we need more testing of this idea or more lab league or something because it, it was not conclusive in the minors last year as I've written and as I think MLB has conceded. It wasn't like there was some huge uptick in batting average or BABIP when the shift was implemented in some minor league levels, although at those levels, the shift is not quite as pervasive as it is in the majors and maybe not as efficient either. But I just still have some misgivings when it comes to this. Like, I think at this point, we can probably conclude that there's not going to be a a natural reaction to it. I'd like that to be the case, but I just don't know if that is really an option available to hitters at this point. Like, hey, just choke up and go the other way. Like, it's just, (laughs) it's too hard to hit this pitching and the types of production that are valued and that players are paid for now don't really lend themselves to that. And so I don't know whether you're going to get like, hey, just give it a few years and we'll have a new wave of hitters who just slap the ball the other way. I'm not sure that that's going to happen. And yet I'm still just uneasy about this. Yeah, people always act like when, when you bring up like Benny the Chef, they says, well, players just, just take it the other way. Right. It's like, oh, no, nobody thought of this yet. <laughs> it's like like a eureka moment for everyone. Wait, we could just hit it the other way. Mm-hmm. It's easier said than done to, you know, when when half the league can throw 97 right in on your hands on command. Yeah, you're not going to take that the other way for a blooper in the left unless you're Tony Gwynn. And most players are not Tony Gwynn. Mm-hmm. I think that when we talk about rule changes as they go with the CBA, that might be a little harder, you know, for writers to feel the player's position than, say, money, because we all understand money. But it's it's hard to say how much they value those working conditions uh, relative to money. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I could say, yeah, maybe that's how you trade for money, but maybe that it's important to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I mean, if, if Meg messaged me one day and said, Dan, we can't use Oxford commas anymore, <laughs> I might be kind of upset about that. She would never. And, and trade, like, money to not have to do that and be able to say <laughs> comma you, and <laughs> how much is it worth it to you to use that extra comma <laughs> i like it too but yeah but I, I i do think that baseball i mean does have to be open to change and it might not be the shift might not be the best way but they do have to explore it and i think you do need to have some kind of system in place where at the end of the day i mean the, the game will have to move on and, and, and try new rules yeah. now i would like them to see if they accelerate the approval process of new rules. I would like there to be an exception for rules that could have an impact on injuries. Yeah. Yes. I think that players, especially pictures, uh, like if you're talking about changing the mound all of a sudden, uh, say they just said, okay, 2022, we're having uh, 62 foot mounds uh, from the plate. I think in that case, I don't think you want that to be implemented that quickly because there is a real risk of injury. It's a, it becomes a health issue. And I think that, working conditions that affect health players should have more veto power over Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I'm with you on that. And probably you could argue that many or most on-field rules changes could, in theory, have some sort of injury effect. I mean, you could say that about the pitch clock, too, right? There's been some suggestion that, well, maybe if you have less time to recover between pitches, you might be more susceptible to injury. Of course, you could just not throw max effort every time, but pitchers have been trained to do that. Not that I've seen any compelling evidence that in the minors, for instance, that has caused a major uptick in injuries relative to the majors, but there have been some theoretical proposals that that could be the case. Anyway, I'm with you on the idea that things need to change and that you have to be willing to shake up the rules a little bit. This just wouldn't be at the top of my list. And I kind of worry that, you know, even though, say, bunting against the shift, which was a fun idea at one time and something that we probably (laughs) advocated, Russell recently revisited his research on that subject, too, and found that even that probably doesn't make sense now. For one thing, it's hard to do, but it seems like defenses have maybe adjusted or pitchers have adjusted in a way that makes that harder to pull off even aside from the injury risk of squaring up instead of swinging away so there are all sorts of issues i just kind of wonder whether the shift is something that everyone defaults to because a it's obvious and very visible and b it's maybe more practical to actually ban it and to say, hey, you need to have two fielders on this side of the field and that side of the field, or they can't stand on the outfield grass or, or however you formulate it. It's easier to sell that maybe than to sell moving the mound back, the effects of which are admittedly unproven, or changing the strike zone, let's say. You know, everyone has been annoyed by the shift at some point. (laughs) Just like, even if you are fine with it philosophically, everyone's had that moment of like the ball gets hit up the middle and you think it's going to be the big base hit for your team and then it's just a routine grounder and you think, oh man, I wish this were pre-shift. So I think a lot of people would not be sorry to see it go. And I wonder whether that's what leads to it being at the top of the list when it comes to rules changes more so than whether it's addressing the real root cause because we remember those things as being hits and that they're not right (laughs) as for the bunting thing i'd be in favor of a rule that anyone that says just bunt it to third uh (laughs) they should be forced to demonstrate that against you know a corbin burns cutter (laughs) like okay just stand in line and you're gonna show them how to do it show joey gallo how to how to bunt that to third Mm -hmm. right So before we let you go, a couple things. I have been feeling for Seiya Suzuki, who has really (laughs) just uh, arrived at the worst possible time to be posted and to potentially sign with a major league team. And as of last week, he or his agent was still saying that he's completely committed to waiting this out. But bad timing for him. They don't do lockouts in NPB, and uh, now he has had to deal with one before even signing with a major league team. But assuming a deal is done, he will sign somewhere at some point. And you ran through the exercise recently of where he might help a team and also just how good he might be because opinions really vary there. And I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit just about how much more predictable NPB players or international players in general have gotten projections wise as more and more players have made that jump and you've gotten a bigger sample size does that mean that the error bars on a cross league comparison like that are smaller than they once were and how confident are you in what zip says about suzuki as opposed to just looking at his really eye-popping stats in japan or some of the more glowing things that scouts have said 
NPB is getting to the point where it's it's fairly accurate, you know, as projections go, which means horribly inaccurate, <laughs> but it's a little less horribly inaccurate than, say, uh, Korea. We have a longer history of, of players coming from Japan to here, players going from the majors here or the minors here to over there, that we do have a, a pretty large group of players to look at and a whole bunch of varieties. We have stars in Japan coming over. We have minor leaguers here going over there. So we have a... a, a a pretty good idea now zips has suzuki kind of near three wins uh like a two to three win player given how thin the outfield free agent market is when there is a free agent market i think that pretty much any team should be very highly interested in him especially if you believe he can play center because i i don't want to see uh michael conforto in center i really Actually, I kind of would be curious about seeing Nick Castellanos in center. That would kind of be amusing. Or or Kyle Schwarber in center. That that was more of a, a Brewster's Millions kind of <laughs> thing with defense. But I think that most teams should be interested in him. I uh, When I ran the projections, uh, teams that include the Phillies, the Brewers, uh, the Mets, especially because now that it looks likely there's going to be a DH, there are a lot more offensive jobs open in the NL. Uh, the Red Sox are up there, and they're one of the teams that were linked to him heavily uh, in you know, the rumor mill. But I think that, no, he's not going to make the same impact that Otani is. Otani was a, a special player who, who was you know, kind of a once-in-a-generation type of talent. Uh, I don't think Suzuki is that guy, but any way you can add a, a terrific player to a team, I mean, you, you, can't, you can't avoid that. Uh, and I do like having, you know, more players from Japan come here. Uh, some of our minor leaguers go over there or major leaguers. I think it it does foster a more international game. Uh, it's the kind I'd love to see, you know, some some more regular season games overseas and all sorts of places. Uh, so I, I, I do think it's 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 good for the sport. And last thing, since we talked to you at the beginning of February, you did a couple posts called Let's Sign Some Hitters and Let's Sign <laughs> Some Pitchers. No one has taken your advice and done that thus far, unless you count minor league deals. But I am allowing a, a moment for you here to pull up those posts and refresh <laughs> your memory on what you actually wrote at the time. But yeah, because this is what happens. Meg says, hey, Dan, can you just like write about some free agent guys for us, please? And, he, Dan, sure. and Dan goes, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an easy sort to work with, so I'd be yeah. happy to do that. And then he gets Pretend two columns out of it. Players can sign somewhere. Yeah. So are there any fits that you have had on your mind since that point that seem either like they would be beneficial for both parties or that would just be fun for you personally <laughs> that you've been hoping that whenever the transaction freeze thaws some of these matches between player and team happen and and I don't know like what the pace will be you know whether we will see a ton of trades happen the second the lockout is lifted and then a bunch of signings following quickly as the market moves in advance of opening day or what it'll even do to the dollars that are being handed out I, I don't know what it would look like in that period of presumably a few frantic weeks. But what are you hoping might happen or thinking that should happen? Well, what I'm worried might happen from what you said just now, I'm worried that like a lot of players will suddenly sign like within hours <laughs> of it being lifted. And then there will be 
there will be accusations thrown back and forth around baseball of of yeah. of, of people talk. Were you talking to them during the lockout? Right. It just kind of seems like baseball likes to do that that self immolation quite a bit. My favorite one, and I'd love to see for for like a number of different reasons. I really want to see Freddie Freeman become a San Diego Padre. Oh, why would you do this to Atlanta fans? It's it's kind of mean, but you know, you just won a World Series, so I don't feel too bad about it. I'm like, oh no, you won a World Series. <laughs> we know they can afford Freeman. Yeah, given the Braves' financial position. <laughs> And the fact they didn't blow him away with an offer before last season, you kind of feel like some on on some level, some mystical level that it should they should be punished for that a little bit. <laughs> and on a personal standpoint, since we're talking about things I like, the Padres did not make me look smart this year when they played like the worst <laughs> team in baseball for the last two months of the season. Yeah. So for them to make me look less dumb. They need another bat on that on the on the easy side of the defensive spectrum because their first base situation is is let's be honest it's a mess they don't really have a left fielder I mean we have Nomar Mazzara last I checked really high on their depth chart and left yeah. which is not what you want Will Myers I mean normally he's someone you look to upgrade but I don't think you will given their position and they don't have really a DH I think that you can bring in Freddie Freeman. Uh, maybe move Hosmer to DH, and that would be a lot of fun. Uh, and I like fun, and you know, having baseball games is fun, and not looking stupid is fun. And so, anything that ha- that causes all these things to happen, I'm for. <laughs> right? Yeah, it would be nice just to be able to talk about players signing somewhere as more than a pure hypothetical. I guess one of your suggested moves has already been denied, right? Because uh, Kwang Young Kim, who I think you had going to the Dodgers in a hypothetical contract, he has uh, since pieced out of uh, MLB entirely and gone back to the landers of KPO. So hard to blame him. Oh, I'm, I'm so sad to see him go because it feels like he never got to to have his potential met in the U.S. You know, there was the COVID year last year. He had some issues last year. And I always think, like, okay, this is the final of the year. Everything works out for him. Everything's going to mm-hmm. come up Kim. And then we're, like the season's in jeopardy. And it's hard not to blame him going back, mm-hmm. given, given the situation. I'm actually mildly surprised that Suzuki is so determined. But, I mean, right. it's hard to walk into a league and your first thing you do in the league when you haven't even signed is you don't play <laughs> right yeah you had Kershaw to the Rangers which would be fun given their earlier signings but also very strange to see him in any other uniform Radon to the Twins Kikuchi to the Giants Tapera to the Cardinals everyone wondering where will Ryan Tapera go that's what's been occupying our minds during the walkout and Granky to the Royals that would be fun and that would, that would be, be nice. yeah kind of in keeping with their trait of uh, seemingly bringing back Royals legends or not even legends and you also had Carlos Correa to the Angels that would be one way potentially to get the Angels playoff odds above 50 percent that <laughs> might help <laughs> that's what it might take yeah I think Art Moreno wants uh a, a playoff structure that's large enough to give the Angels a chance, and they're going to keep trying until there is. Okay, we still missed it. We need a 2014 playoff. Yes, and he also wants the CBT to be the same in yeah. perpetuity, seemingly. And- but, going, but going back to the Royals, I, I really like the idea. That that idea tickled me because 
I, I guess it's I guess it's kind of that writer instinct. It's fun to see like the story go full circle back to the beginning. You know, right. Chekhov's picture. You you don't send <laughs> you don't send Granky away in the first act unless you're going to bring him home in the third act. Yes, and you know he they have a young pitching rotation. They could use a guy who maybe can eat some innings. When he came back uh, the first time to Kansas City, he was really the the fans were really into it, and he was he actually expressed how happy he was about that. And as I said, I don't think he's the type of player who's going to be obsessed with kind of the symbolic idea of winning a ring. Granky's kind of I don't want to say different, but I mean he's blunter in a way. Like I loved when he when he went to the Diamondbacks and said he did it for the money, which, <laughs> which no other player does, even when they say, "Oh, it was oh the schools are great here," <laughs> right? Yeah, it, it had nothing to do with. With they offered me $50 million more than anyone else. But I just like Denver schools. I think that's what Mike Hampton pretty much said, uh, if, if I recall right. Or maybe it was Nagel. But I digress. Yeah. Uh, it would be fun to see that. And it's it's kind of hard to dislike the Royals. I don't think they're the best-run team. But they also ranked very high in the non-douchey category in, yeah. in, in 2020. Uh, Dayton Moore uh, of the Royals, I think he cares more about his minor leaguers and the health of his team from a baseball standpoint than probably most people in baseball do. And it, it, it feels like a fun going way present to have Granky back there. Mm -hmm. Well, all of those things could come to pass. Conforto to the <laughs> Phillies, Bryant to the Blue Jays, Schwarber to the Brewers, also on your list. But a CBA needs to be agreed to before any of that can happen. Perhaps that will happen soon. In the meantime... You can read Dan at Fangraphs and find him on Twitter, where he is quite active, even when MLB is not, at DSimborski. There's an S before the Z. And before I hit stop here, should I just allow either of you or both of you a minute to stump for Fangraphs, which David oh. Appleman did on the site? this yeah. week given that lockouts can be hard on baseball websites and their staffs <laughs> well I, i'll give one because meg's had to do so much of them so i, I i'll do one <laughs> thanks dan now i want to remind our listeners that if you've enjoyed the features we've had at fangraphs you know projections prospects all the various things we do positional reports future rankings we are in a position where our revenues are down baseball's lockout does have an effect on on third parties that have based their livings on baseball and if you have the wherewithal to do so we would love if you became members the fangraphs community is great if you noticed it's one of the few sites on the internet where you can actually interact in the comment section and not hate everything about life <laughs> uh, we should tell you the strength of our community. You all came out for us very well in 2020. Yeah. And we we want to keep bringing you good stuff in, in, in the season, hopefully, to come and the years to come. Yeah. We just, you know, do need a little bit of a boost right now. Yeah. And, you know, as, as David said, like the situation we're in right now isn't as dire as it was in 2020, in large part because of the membership support that we got from a really great community in 2020. But this is our busy time of year. And when, you know, site views are down 44% relative to what we'd expect this time of year, it has a big impact on our revenue. And we have a lot of stuff we're really excited about that is coming to the site. We can't talk about it just yet, but we're constantly adding site features and trying to add new voices and everything at Fangraphs is free to access, but it all takes money to create. So 
If you're in a spot where you can spare us an ad-free membership, it's really the best way to support the site and it's the best way to experience the site. You know, if you do anything with our leaderboards or the board or any of the other stuff that's a little more sort of processing intensive, the difference between ad-free and non is really incredible. So we appreciate the sort of rally that we saw yesterday and we hope that people will continue to think of us as we wait out the lockout because we're we're ready and raring to go as soon as there is baseball back and you supporting us make sure we'll be there when it is all right i guarantee you i have like 70 articles i'm gonna end up having to write that two-week period (laughs) oh yeah we're going to be very busy so uh if you want to see me like go gray in real time you know buy a membership so that you can uh be around when when we can be around rather when baseball comes back All right. Pretty persuasive plea, if you ask me. Well, thanks to both of you, and thanks for coming on, Dan. Thanks for having me, guys. Always fun. Well, I waited as long as I could, but as midnight Monday night approaches on the East Coast, there is still no news. I will hope against hope that there will be happy news by the time you hear this, in which case we will be back in your podcast feed sometime soon. If not, buck up, and we'll be back a little later this week. In the meantime, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks while helping us stay ad-free. Wyatt Curtis, Megan Deegan, or maybe Megan Deegan, Luke Kicklighter, Darren Cohen, and Will O. Thanks to all of you. Our Patreon supporters can, of course, get access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for Patreon people. It's sort of a 24-7 support group. And they also get the pleasure, hopefully, of listening to our monthly bonus episodes for Patreon supporters. Anyone, not just patrons, can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance, and we will be back to talk to you soon. Bye.